All right. Why don't you turn to Zechariah chapter 11, please? Zechariah chapter 11 and 12 tonight. And um, we are in the section that's the second major division that deals with um, prophecies after the building of the temple. Uh, Zechariah 9 through 14. All are undated, as we said last time. Some have guessed these are somewhere in 480, but it's a guess. Uh, chapter 9 through 11 centers on the Messiah's first coming and rejection with inferences to the second coming. 12 through 14 center on the Messiah's second coming and enthronement with inferences to the first coming. So they kind of reverse. Now, 12 through 14, these three chapters are all to be fulfilled at the end of the last three and a half years of great tribulation and the kingdom age. With two exceptions, chapter 12, verse 10 and chapter 13, verse 6 through 7. Everything else is prophetic of the end of the great tribulation and the millennial kingdom. Both sections are depicted by the phrase burden, as we mentioned last time, implying judgment. The first one was the burden against the enemies of Israel in 9-1. And uh, we will see in 12-1 the burden against Israel. So as we continue with chapter 11, the focus still centers on the first coming of the Messiah and rejection with inferences to the second coming. Chapter 11, 1 through 3, we have the desolation of Israel. It says, though I speak, oops, how about um, 1 Corinthians 13, wrong one. Chapter 11 says, open your doors, O Lebanon, that fire may devour your cedars, wail, O Cyprus. For the cedar has fallen because the mighty trees are ruined. Wail, O oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has come down. There is the sound of wailing shepherds, for their glory is in ruins. There is the sound of roaring lions, for the pride of Jordan is in ruins. Now, verse 1 through 3, we have the result of Israel's rejection of Jesus after his first coming here. The um, period moves Beyond the Maccabean time, the time of blessing through difficulties to judgment by um, the next world empire, Rome. Remember in the previous chapter, we're talking about the Maccabean period coming out of the Babylonian captivity. You have the, you have the Greece and then Alexander the Great. You have the Maccabean. Now the next empire is Rome, the legs of iron. Okay, The pathway Rome would come through is the north right here mentioned in verse 1 through 3. Like Alexander the Great indicated by the expression, open your doors, O Lebanon. The Romans came through the north, just like Alexander. The great African rift runs through that area, down to the Dead Sea, all the way down to Africa. Lebanon means whiteness. The devastation is stated that fire may devour your cedars there in verse 1. The Roman army was an incredible force to be reckoned with. The horrible destruction in verse 2 is expressed by the personification of the trees. The trees are to cry out, Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedars has fallen. The reason is stated in 2, because the mighty trees are ruined. The word mighty means majestic or in size or grandeur. Beautiful one. Of course, as a great army comes through, they have to make the path. They need wood and they chop down trees. The quality of trees cut down, wail oaks of Basham, for the thick forest has come down. This was the area east of the Jordan, given to half of the tribe of Manasseh up in the north, on the other side of the Jordan River. The emphasis, notice, is on the world 
renowned reputation of these mighty trees of Lebanon that are no more. Hiram, remember, floated the um, big cedar trees down the Mediterranean Sea to Joppa, where Solomon's men then picked them up and transported them over to Jerusalem to build a temple. You find this in Second Chronicles 2.16. It's the very town that Peter was up in the rooftop praying when he became hungry and saw the the screen of all manner of creeping thing that's Joppa <laughs> that's where the trees were loaded and taken to Jerusalem incredible wood up in the high country cold the great suffering is also described at verse 3 the lamentation of the shepherds living out tending the sheep there is no sound of wailing shepherds They've been affected also. The reason being that the old trees are cut down for their glorious and ruin. The animals were equally affected by the neutering of the land. If it's vegetation, there is no sound of roaring lions. And so man always, you know, have you ever thought about it? That, you know, when before anybody moved out to the west or into the mountains, God's never called a sprinkler guy to put some irrigation in. God hasn't called a guy to come and put drains down the valleys. God takes care of all that stuff. It's when man moves in that they mess it all up. But if you leave the land alone, God takes care of the land. We just mess things up. There at the end of verse 3, the lamentation reaches its climax for the pride of Jordan is in ruins. The reason for this judgment was due to the rejection of Jesus as their Messiah. Verse 12. We'll show that. This would also include Masada and Jerusalem. We're in the period of Rome now here. 70 AD, a little further. Titus, in verse 4, down to 14, you have the false and the good shepherd. He says, thus saith the Lord my God, feed the flock for slaughter, whose owners slaughter them and feed no, feel no guilt. Those who sell them say, blessed be the Lord, for I am rich and their shepherds do not pity them. For I will no longer pity the inhabitants of the land, says the Lord. But indeed, I will give everyone into his neighbor's hands and into the hand of the king or his king. They shall attack the land and I will not deliver them from their hand. So verse 4 through 6 here. The command, the punishment here on Israel for rejecting their Messiah is what it's leading to. Verse 4 here, the command of God to Zechariah is to feed the flock. The uh, shepherd feeds and protects the sheep. This is the imagery and metaphor that is used throughout Scripture. Jesus is the good shepherd, the chief shepherd. The context is for slaughter, mark it well there in verse 4, by the false Jewish leaders under the time of Rome. The oppressor is Rome, but the religious leaders in the days of Jesus did not care for the people and only looked out for their own financial and political interests. Notice whose owners slaughter them and feel no guilt. Those who sell them say, Blessed be the Lord. For I am rich in verse 5. So there's nothing new under the sun. This has always been, always will be. As long as we live in this fallen world, there will be people that will always take advantage of Christians under the name of Christ. There will be people who become shepherds by God's calling, anointing, and direction. A true calling. And yet they will get twisted and tweaked and deviate from their call. And corrupt their call. 
There are others who may start with self-interest and then God will deal with them and they will respond and become incredible pastors. It all depends on our heart, where we're going, whether we respond to God and are obedient or not. But woe to the shepherds is the warning always who do not feed the flock of God. I, I think of um, so many. You know, um, the majority, Calvary chapels, um, I, I follow the model that Pastor Chuck set. He did Sunday morning, he did Sunday night, he did midweek and other things. And as time moved on, the Calvaries, some pastors began to become lazy and fat. And then they only did Sunday morning and give their midweek to one of their guys as if they're so gracious. Or the Sunday night. And they don't even have Sunday nights anymore, many of them. And you ask, well, you know, not enough people came out. Not enough. Did one go up? If one of you came tonight, what a privilege I would have to teach you. I would be teaching the same way as I'm teaching you right now. You do not let your children set the agenda in your home as the head of your home. You are the father. You do not allow the people to set the agenda in the church. You are the shepherd. Simple. Simple principle. But people get lazy. People get corrupt. People follow the culture, the trends. And they spiritualize it. Well, yeah, you know, no, just say you're lazy. That's all. The religious um, leaders had no compassion for the people. Verse 5 still in their shepherds do not pity them. The people were not taught the word of God, but rather the many interpretations of the elders. Remember Jesus? He says, well, you know, You have heard that it has been said, but I say to you. Jesus didn't quote anybody. He's the highest authority. They're always quoting the different interpretations. Listen to Jeremiah 23, 1 and 2. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord Yahweh. Therefore, thus saith the Lord Yahweh, God of Israel, against the shepherds who who feed my people, you have scattered my flock, driven them away, and not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for the evil of your doing, says the Lord Yahweh. Woe. Woe does not mean he's on a horse. It means judgment. The oppressed and rule, the oppressed and rule the people exalting themselves. Ezekiel 34, 2 says, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, Thus saith the Lord God to the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherd feed the flock? It's a rhetorical question. There's only one right answer. Yes. Jesus said that he saw the people, as sheep having no shepherd, scattered. Peter says, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not as by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over the, those entrusted to you, but being examples of the flock. And when the chief sh- shepherd appears, Jesus, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away, First Peter 5, 2 through 4. He does it all. But we're to be faithful stewards in what he calls us to do. The problem is people begin to compare themselves among themselves so they're not very wise. People start comparing churches and what's going on and who knows what. People ask me all the time, well, have you seen that? No. I don't have time to look at other churches or other things. I'm busy studying, praying, and preparing to feed the flock of God. And that's the way it's been since 1973. Nothing has changed with me. If you know your call, you do what he's called you to do. And the rest, the rest has less value the older you get. And it doesn't have a place in your life. It really doesn't. Verse 6 The exhausted patient of God 
for the nation of Israel would be manifested through the hand of Rome. God would not be merciful any longer, for I will no longer pity the inhabitants of the land, says the Lord there in verse 6. God was punishing the rebellious hearts of the people. But indeed, I will give everyone into the neighbor's hand and into the hand of the king, Rome. God would give them to Rome. Altogether, they shall attack the hand, and I will not deliver them from their hand. Remember, each succeeding empire is replaced by the new one, and it's God's judgment on them. Verse 7 down to 8, we have the obedience of Zechariah to feed the flock. He says, so I fed the flock for slaughter, in particular to the poor of the flock. I took for myself two staffs, the one I call beauty, the other I call bonds, and I fed the flock. I dismissed the three shepherds in one month. My soul loathed them, and their soul also abhorred me. Now, in verse 7, he taught them the word of God. So in obedience, Zechariah here teaching them as a shepherd. He was particularly diligent to the faithful remnant. They are, in particular, the poor of the flock. God, through Zechariah, was doing his will. I took you for myself. I took myself two staffs. The one, beauty. The other called bonds. And I fell and I fed the flock. Beauty means favor or grace and bond means to bind or unity. Making the nation one. No longer two kingdoms. Look at verse 8. God in his righteous judgment removed three leaders. He executed his wrath on them. I dismissed the three shepherds in one month. There is nothing in history that we can verify about who these three shepherds are. There are some people who think it's a modern day fulfillment with the modern day state of Israel, but I don't see anything there. We just don't know. It could have a reference to the king uh, for the princes, the priests, and the prophet. Maybe those three that he's calling judgment. I don't know. I'm not sure. Some think they may be in reference again to the last days. He judged them with righteous hatred. Notice, my soul loathed them, and their soul also abhorred me. The feeling was mutual. Nine through ten, the judgment of God to give the nation up to themselves is given to us. Nine says, Then I said, I will not feed you. Let what is dying die, and what is perishing perish. Let those who are left eat each other's flesh. And I took my staff beauty, and I cut it in two, and I might break the covenant which I had made with all the peoples. So here in verse 9, God would remove his hand from the nation. Spiritual light would be removed when I said, I will not feed you. Spiritual death would result. Let what is dying die and what is perishing perish. Cannibalism would occur. Rome is the empire. Rome is going to bring a heavy hand upon the Jews. Let those that are left eat each other's flesh. When Titus um, cut off the city from food and water and the siege, they turned to eating those who had died or babies. Deuteronomy 25, 54 through 57 states this prophetically in judgment. Isaiah 9.20 records it. Lamentations 2.24.10. Josephus' War of the Jews, volume uh, 6, page 201 to 13, gives a very descriptive atrocities that were going on within the city by the Roman gangs. Just 
killing and raping and cannibalism. Incredible time. God would give up the nation by not honoring the covenant. Notice in verse 10, God affirmed this by the visual demonstration. I took my staff, beauty, and I cut it in two. God would be true to his covenant. That I might break the covenant which I had made with all the people. But he's breaking it here. The word break means to make, uh, to revoke or to disannul the blessing promises that were to them. They had violated the conditions and would reject the Messiah receiving the curses. The word covenant, the root word is to cut, to divide. And they would divide the sacrifice and separate the parts in two parts. And then the two people who made the covenant would walk between the two pieces of the animal. And you find that in Jeremiah. And then the blood would join it. And the two who walked in the midst would be responsible to keep that covenant. This was the practice of the covenant. You find it in Genesis 15, 9 through 10 and Jeremiah 34, 18. This did not revoke the covenant of Abraham and David that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and then David in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. The, the heir is still on the throne, the seed of David, Jesus Christ. But the covenant that he made with the people, he revoked it because they had abandoned it. They rejected the Messiah. In verse 11, he says, so it was broken in that day that the poor of the flock who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. So God confirms his giving up of the nation that day. Jesus wept over Jerusalem, so it was broken on that day. The faithful few here understood Zechariah was speaking the word of God, and they believed the poor of the flock who were watching me knew it was the word of the Lord. It's always amazing to me how people can sit in a Bible study or a church service and be so, you know, I, I see all your mugs all the time. You only see me. I see all of you. And I, I see you engaged. I see you writing notes. I see you. And to me, the time flies. The hour is like 10 minutes. Now, I'm the first to know if you're bored. Now, somebody gets up and walks out, that doesn't bother me. Somebody out there messing around, whatever, doesn't bother me. Now, if a lot of you did that, then I've got a problem. But it's amazing to me how God uses His Word and His Spirit to deal with your hearts, to instruct you as you're sitting there with an open heart for God to minister to you. And when you come with an open heart like that, regardless of what I say, what I'm teaching, it could be Leviticus, it could be Numbers, it could be whatever, God will meet your need. But if you came to hear me, you're going to walk out very disappointed. Very disappointed. And that's always the case with God's people. Verse 12 through 14, we have the betrayal of the Messiah. He says, then I said to them, if it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they waited out for my wages, 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it into the potter, which pricely, um, princely price they have set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. Then I cut into my other staff bonds that I might break the bond, the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. So here in verse 12, then I said to them, if it's agreeable to you, give me my wages. Refrain uh, the reference here to the silver to the betrayal of Jesus Christ by Judas Iscariot. His wages, if it's agreeable. They insult Judas, really, by their hatred for Jesus, valuing him as a slave who had been gored 
buy an ox 30 pieces of silver. You find that in Exodus 21, 32. And you have the betrayal in Matthew 26, 15 and 27, 3 through 10. And then Peter picks it up and quotes it also in Acts 1, 18 through 19. Silver symbolic of redemption. Matthew attributes it to Jeremiah. Yet Jeremiah 18 and 19 provides the potter's house of the marred vessels. Zechariah provides the specific quote. Matthew says, in fulfillment of, he doesn't really quote anybody specifically. But he is dealing with Zechariah because we have it here, but he also makes the metaphor of the potter that Jeremiah dealt with. Now, as you know, Judas Iscariot kind of had deep remorse, but not repentance. There are people who have deep remorse for what they have done. Sometimes they've done some dumb things and they can't believe it. And now they got to pay the price. And they just can't believe how dumb they were. Nothing can be done about it. But if there's only remorse and tears, once those are gone, you'll do it again. But if your remorse is not like the world, but it's repentance, that you see it as sin against God and then against man, and you ask forgiveness for him to forgive you and to change your heart so you don't have to live that way again, then God honors that. There's a difference. How many a young lady, especially with the, uh, well, I'm not lose morals, there's no morals today. But um, with the um, facilitating of the state paying for the babies and everything, go get pregnant and they, you know, they get an abortion or, you know, or they have a baby and they have another baby because the state's going to give them money. There's no, there's no repentance, there's no nothing because it doesn't cost them. It may give them some inconvenience for a little bit of time, but, you know, they just move on. And this is the world. Now, all of us were there at one time or another. And we look back and we see the destruction that it brings to others, let alone to ourselves. And society just keeps moving on in this downward push forward. Just declaring how fun it is and how great it is. But let me tell you, at a certain point down this road, it will come to an explosion or a screeching halt. One of the two. And it will not be pretty. Judas Iscariot hung himself. He cast 30 pieces of silver and then the self-righteous scribes and fairies said, well, you know, that's blood money. We can't put it in the treasure. So they bought a potter's field to bury um, strangers and everything else. Amazing. The remorse and outcome of Judas is prophesied in Matthew 27, 3 through 10. Amazing. Verse 13 here makes that prophetic declaration. What are the chances of this coming to pass exactly? It's insane. Again, Matthew 27, 3 through 10 quotes it. Now, the second staff here is broken by God as a visual demonstration to confirm the judgment for the scattering of the nation by the hand of Rome. Listen to what he says. Then I cut in two my other staff, bonds, that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Bonds means binding together. The oneness and unity of the nation would be broken as a result of what? Rejecting Jesus Christ. You see the 12 verses key to the whole chapter there. It's the rejection of Messiah. The judgment comes because of that. Jesus wept over Jerusalem, Luke 21. 
In 15 through 17, we have the foolish and the idle shepherd. He says, for the Lord said to me, next, take to yourself the um, implements of a foolish shepherd. For indeed, I will uh, raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for those who are cut off, nor seek the young, nor heal those that are broken, nor feed those that still stand. But he will eat the flesh of the fat and tear the hooves in pieces. Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock a sword shall be against his arm and against his right eye. His arm shall completely wither and his right eye shall be totally blinded. Now, in verse 15, here we have the revelation of the Antichrist. The proclamation of the coming of the Antichrist is there in verse 15. The implements of the foolish shepherd. Having rejected the good shepherd, the Jews will be ready to... Um, and right for the Antichrist, the man of sin, the Bible tells us. Jesus said, I have come in my Father's name, and you did not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive, John five forty three, the Antichrist. The usual implements of a shepherd is a staff to guide the sheep and a crook, which is much heavier to defend the sheep. The foolish shepherd does not use these, but looks out for himself. That's why he's called foolish. In 16, the devastation by the Antichrist is given. He will be brought about by God. For indeed, I will raise up the shepherd in the land. But God does not make him do the evil. God only knows the evil he will do and he serves the purposes of God. He will be uncompassionate. Notice in 16. He will not care for those who are cut off, nor seek the young, nor heal those who are broken, nor feed those who still stand. What kind of shepherd are you? Worthless. Contrary to the good shepherd, Jesus in John 10. He will violently be narcissistic. He will be so in love with himself He's going to be worse than Obama. But he will eat the flesh of the fat and tear their hooves in pieces. God will send them strong delusions, having rejected the truth, Second Thessalonians 2, 9 and 10 says. Look at the world where it's going. All the things that the world's believing as true, but it's false. As wisdom, but it's stupidity. It's amazing. For the first time in our nation, we have a shadow government behind our presidency. For the first time. It's pretty scary. All that we used to say about Russia in the 60s and the 70s in Cuba and the communist countries, we see it happening here. It's a very scary scenario. God will deal with him. He comes in false peace, as Revelation 6 1, rides on a white horse, false peace, with a bow, no arrow. He conquers through diplomacy, having all the solutions. Russia having attacked Israel, God destroying five sixths of that army, all of a sudden he appears. The covenant is made with Israel in Daniel 9 27 for seven years. He'll build their temple for them. First three and a half years, man, what solutions? Everything, military genius, just economic wizard, everything else. He builds their temple then in the middle and of the seven years. Jesus says, the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet, flee to the wilderness. He declares himself God, Second Thessalonians 2, 4. Demands everybody to worship him, take his number. Without it, you can't buy, you can't sell, you can't do anything. We're headed that direction, ladies and gentlemen. Um, you just... Um, Look at your bank and what's going on with the credit cards and your transactions and the information you have to give and the amount that you can move or whatever. It's headed to completely electronically. It will be cashless. 
and then they won't have to call you or ask you any questions. They'll have every transaction electronically. They will control your money 100%. We're headed there. Revelation 11, 1 and 2 tells us the temple will be built. Daniel 12, 11 speaks about the Antichrist. He will not care for the people. He will use the people. Verse 17, the assassination attempt on the Antichrist is given to us. The judgment of God is due to his evil character. Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. The repercussions of the assassination is given to us. One arm and eye will be affected. The sword shall be against his arm and against his right eye. Both his arm and his eye will be permanently impaired. Totally blinded. So if you're still around, you'll be able to identify him. Real, real simple. I don't plan on being here. I've already made my reservations. Now, we enter the second division. The major division consisting um, of these chapters uh, 9 through 14. We have studied the first half that center on the Messiah's first coming and rejection with inference to the second coming under the heading of the burden of the Lord against the enemies of Israel in 9 through 11. Now uh, begins with the 12th chapter. We come to the last half of Zechariah's second major division that centers on the Messiah's second coming and uh, enthronement with inference to the first coming under the heading of the burden over Israel. Here beginning chapter 12 that runs to 14. These last three chapters, with the exception as I gave you those two texts, 12, 10, and 13, 6 through 7, all of them will be fulfilled in the, last, the latter part of the Great Tribulation. So in verse 12, and we did this in depth this morning, so I'm not going to belabor a lot much. You can pick the in-depth study. In 12, uh, 1 through 9, you have the siege and deliverance of Jerusalem. Verse 1 says, The burden, the word of the Lord against Israel. Uh, Thus saith the Lord, who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy, uh, a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. The word burden again, here's the revelation of judgment. It means uh, uh, an oracle of judgment, something heavy, something to be carried and to be proclaimed. The source is the judgment of God, the word of God. This is not Zechariah. This is God proclaiming the judgment. The judgments against Israel. Daniel 12.1 speaks about Michael the angel standing up, the great prince, in that day uh, for the sons of the people of God, the Jews. And there shall be times of trouble such as never been from the beginning. Times of trouble. And so they correlate with the words of Jesus about the tribulation and great tribulation. Jacob's trouble is the title that is given to the spirit of time by Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 7. The authority behind the revelation is the Lord, the covenant God. The credentials are incredible. He expands the heavens. He is, he is in control of maintaining the, the, the space, the, the thinned out space literally. That's what space is and it keeps growing and expanding. And he is the creator of everything. He spoke everything to being. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. There's nothing that was made that wasn't made for him, and, uh, by him and for him and to him. Everything is his. The one who formed man's spirit within him. And basically, in Genesis, as God created Adam out of the ground. And then he made Eve out of his curved side. But his body is just the instrument. Your body and my body is just the instrument to communicate my actions like a glove. If you take your hand out of the glove, it'll fall to the ground. The life source is out of it. The real me is spirit. The soul deals with my intellect, my emotions, and my will. Now, when you and I were in the world, we were upside down. 
we were body uppermost, our, our, our soul, our intellect, our emotion, our wills yielded to our body's sinful nature and our spirit was dead. Then we were born again, were inverted upright. Now my spirit is uppermost. Now I know God's will. Now I know what pleases God. I know what offends God. So my soul, my intellect, my emotion, my wills are subject to the Spirit of God that's made me alive. And my body is now the temple of God. It makes all the difference in the world. But if you're not born again, then you do what you want. You go where you want. You doesn't matter. You're a slave to your own passions, to your own ideas about life. And you just care about yourself. In verse 2 and 3, the attack of the nation, the nations against Israel. We saw this morning, God will bring the confrontation about. It's emphatic here in verse 2. He's the initiator. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness. The cup is like a bowl, a basin, a goblet, and these people think they're going to come and drink her up and do away with her, but to their dismay, will turn around to their own staggering reeling. The cup really means, uh, uh, the, the drunkenness means, uh, it's a metaphor of weakness and literally a cup of reeling back and forth. Like I said, the top um, that you throw down and it spins real smooth, but then as it loses speed, it starts wobbling. God identifies the people involved, all who surround, uh, are surrounding um, Jerusalem. It's attack on Jerusalem. This is a, a very descriptive battle that goes on that we get nowhere else. Um, God will allow the invasion. In verse 3, God will respond to their siege um, to be the destruction of the nations. God is in control. God gives plenty of time for people to make decisions, to make choices. But God's on the throne. He's not biting his nails. God will cause Israel to stand. It happened that day. He will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for the people. That day is a key phrase appearing seven times in this chapter. The the heavy stone is something immovable. It will be to their own hurt, to their own destruction. All the nations that are involved coming against Jerusalem. God will deliver them. All who would heave Jerusalem away. Jerusalem is mentioned in the Bible more than any other city. 776 times. It appears 42 times in Zechariah. 12 times in chapter 12. Jerusalem, God loves Jerusalem. It's his city. God will give the victory in spite of the odds. All the nations of the earth are gathered against Israel. We see the same spirit today. But this context in this scripture is for the end of the great tribulation. Though we still see the same anti-Semitic spirit that's going on all over the world right now. In Europe, Russia, Iran. America, the universities, wow. The universities are the greatest um, training camps of anti-American, anti-military, and anti-Christian. It's amazing. Verse 4 down to 7, you have the defense of Israel by God. He says, in that day, there it is again, says the Lord, I will strike every horse in confusion and its riders with madness. I will open my eyes on the house of Judah and I will strike every house of the peoples with blindness. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, the inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength and the Lord of hosts their God. In that day, I will make the governors of Judah like the fire plant, a fire pan in the woodpile and like a fiery torch in the sheaves. They shall devour all the surrounding peoples in the right hand and the left hand. But Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place. Jerusalem. Wow, the emphatic Jerusalem. Yes, I'm talking about Jerusalem. The Lord will save the tents of Judah first and that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the house of Jerusalem shall not become greater than that of Judah. 
And so in verse 4, God will fight to defend Jerusalem. Confusion, meaning that they are just brought to dismay. The authorities is God again, divine intervention, just like many times in the Old Testament, God intervened in the battle, turning the sword upon the enemy themselves. God will look to the good of the Jews. He will open his eyes to the house of Judah to hear them. He will impair the horses, the riders, confusion, astonishment, because they feel so confident that they can wipe out Israel. And all of a sudden, it just turns around. You know, we've all seen people shoot their mouth out. They think they're bad. And especially today, cage fight and everything like that. And they just talk their stuff. They get out there and they just get their clock clean. I love to see that. Humbles people. You know, rather than knowing you're pretty good, but walking out, having a good sport and whatever. And, you know, but no, everybody, everybody's so full of themselves. It's, there's no room for anybody else at all. Now, he blinds them. And, you know, this happened with Elijah. I mentioned it this morning in the city of Doth in 2 Kings 6.18 as the Syrian army surrounded looking for Elijah because he was leaking the, the plans of the enemy to the king of Israel. And so when the servant of Elijah went out there and he saw the Syrian army, he freaked out. And Elijah prayed, Lord, open his eyes. And he saw the angels of the Lord all around. And he says, those that are with us are more than those with them. Then he struck blindness on the, uh, Syrian, the Syrian army completely. So God, is, God can do what he wants. God has great zeal for Zion and for Jerusalem. He said in chapter 1, verse 14. Verse 5, God will be the complete confidence of the leaders in battle. Verse 5 says that the governors, they'll say in their heart, the real person, their honors are genuine towards the Lord. They will declare their trust in the people under their command because they are trusting the Lord. So you have a unity of trusting and confidence in God, the Lord of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven. And in 6, God will make the leaders a devastating weapon in his hands. The two similes here. It says that in that day, he will make them there, the governors, um, like a, a fire pan in the woodshed, which who would do that? It just goes up in smokes, and that's the point. And also the fiery torch and sheaves. In other words, they're going to be something to be reckoned with. The victorious outcome is certain. They shall devour all the surrounding peoples on the right and the left hand. He says there in verse 6. As we saw in the book of Judges, God would enter in, raising up a new judge, and he'd wipe them out. Gideon, the Midianites, the city of Jerusalem will be the capital of the world. In verse 6 at the end, Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place. Jerusalem, that's the kingdom. Here's the battle against it. It's going to survive. And Jerusalem will be the center, the capital. Political, religious, economic in the kingdom age. God will work in such a way that he alone will get the glory, verse 7 says. Not Judah, not Jerusalem, no longer north and south, but all are looking to the Lord. The people are back in the land right now in Israel. This is 1948, declared dependence for the third time. But they're back in the land, but they're not back with God. You remember the first chapter of Haggai? That was God's complaint. You're back in the land, but you haven't repented. They repented, then they started building the temple, right? <laughs> That's what God's going to do. Ezekiel 37, the second part, pouring out His Spirit. 8 through 9, we have the protection over the people in Jerusalem. Uh, he says, in that day, here it is again, the Lord will uh, defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the one who is feeble among them. In that day shall be like David, and the house of uh, David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. Um, it shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Israel. Um, I'm sorry, Jerusalem. So here again, God provides divine protection in that day of the Lord. Uh, because this whole period is the day of the Lord. It begins when the rapture of the church takes place, the Antichrist appears. God will make each as a fearless and fierce warrior as David, a mighty warrior. The most feeble will be like David, which is incredible. 
And God will make them invincible. He's not saying that they will be like God, but they will be invincible like God and the illustration of the angel of the Lord before them. In other words, he stands between them and their enemy doing the work through them. That's what it's talking about there. The angel of the Lord, as you know, is the pre, uh, pre-incarnate Christ before the real incarnation of the New Testament that appears many times in the Old Testament. And Joshua 5.13 speaks about the man on the horse and uh, Joshua says, are you for them or for us? And, you know, he's the captain of the army of heaven. He's not for anybody. The thing is, are you for him? And is he for you? In verse 9, God will utterly wipe out all that attack the city of Jerusalem. Without exception, in that day, the great tribulation towards the end. Jesus prophesied a twofold fulfillment about Jerusalem. 70 AD, and here we have it again. At the end of the great tribulation, Luke nineteen forty through forty four, and Luke twenty one twenty through twenty. From verse ten to fourteen, we have now the repentance and conversion of Jerusalem and the Jews. Verse ten says, "And all the land shall be turned into a plain from Giba Rimon south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be raised up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's." gate to the place of the first gate and the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel, the king's winepress, the people shall dwell in it and no longer shall there be utter destruction. Oops, I'm sorry. I turned two pages. David shall be like God. Uh, let me see here. Verse 10. I was reading. I turned two pages. And I will pour out the house of David. Verse 10. And on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for the firstborn. In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of um, Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of Shemai by itself, and the wives by themselves, and all the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives by themselves. The blindness of Israel will be removed, verse 10. God will pour out a spirit of grace upon the remnant of Israel. Hebrews 8, 7 through 13 speaks about that in fulfillment of Joel chapter 2, verse 28, Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34, Ezekiel 37, verse 26 to 28, Ezekiel 29, 28 through 29. Don't forget Amos 9, 11 through 15. All over. God will... Reconcile Israel again, the remnant. Do not believe when people teach replacement theology that God is through with Israel and that the church is spiritual Israel. They had just failed the subject of Bible. A double F. Right now the Jews are ignorant of God's righteousness, trying to establish their own righteousness, Paul says in Romans 10.3. God will allow them to see their past blindness towards Jesus as their Messiah. They will identify Him. They will look upon Him who they pierce. Wow. Realizing that they crucified their own Messiah. Thomas, I won't believe it unless I see His prints on His hand and His side. John 20.25. They will be broken before God as a genuine heart of sorrow and grief. They will mourn as one for their firstborn. That's a horrible grief. They will see their rejection, their hardness of heart. This is the fulfillment of Israel's salvation, Romans eleven twenty five through 27. For I do not desire, Paul says, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentile come in, the rapture of the church, the full number of people to be saved. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. 
For this is my covenant with them, them, the Jew, nation, the remnant, when I take away their sins. Romans eleven twenty five through 27. What do you do with that? If you teach replacement theology. What do you do with all those passages of Jeremiah and Ezekiel and, and Zechariah? You have to spiritualize them. You have to just subjectively make up something. Wow. I wouldn't want to be you on Judgment Day when you do that. You don't mess with God's Word. In Deuteronomy, says, don't add or take away. In Proverbs, he says, don't add or take away. And the book of Revelation says, you don't add or take away. Or it will be added to you the judgments. Whoa. The repentance from 11 to 14 is true, it's genuine, it's universal for the remnant. The mourning is compared to the ancestral history of Josiah when he was killed by Pharaoh Necho in the ghetto. And uh, Jeremiah lamented incredibly for him as well as the nation completely in Second Kings 23, 29-30 and Second Chronicles 35, 22-27. It's a corporate mourning, but salvation is individual. You must repent of your sins individually. Your wife may not repent. You may. Your husband may not repent, but you may. You may both repent, but it's got to be individual. A whole family can be saved, like the jailer's family, but it was individual. God doesn't save through family packages. Sometimes Christians say, well, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm saved, so, so God's going to save all my family. What? Would to God, that'd be great. Just get one saved, you got the whole package. That's not the way it works. Not the way it works. Each family here is demonstrating their repentance individual. The kingly family first. Then the priestly family. Then the rest of the tribes. The house of David and his son Nathan. This is not the prophet, but his son. And Levi, his son Shemai, and then you have the rest of the tribes. Genuine repentance. God honors that. When you move into chapter 13, when we get there next week, it's actually the repercussion and the consequences of true repentance as God begins to sanctify them and remove all the junk, all the idolatry, everything else, just like he did to you and to me. You see, that's the way God does things all the time. His grace, His goodness. Wow. Israel will be saved. Not all that are Israel are Israel. Or that say they're Israel are Israel. And not all Jews will be saved. There's a remnant in the end times. God will gather from the four corners of the earth. God will deal with them once He removes the church. We, the church, will return with Him to set up the kingdom, judge the nations. And Jesus will destroy all the armies of the world that will try to stop him from setting up his kingdom. Wow. You see, that doesn't make sense. Does what's going on in the world today make sense? The things that people are doing and saying, there's only one answer to what is going on in our nation today. Spiritual blindness and judgment from God. We have sown to the wind. And boy, have we reaped the whirlwind. And so the best thing to do is to abide in Christ. To look to Him. Let Him prepare you. Let Him use you. Walk in obedience. And be ministering Christ. Because so many people are lost. Caught up in all these lies. All this junk. All this political stuff. Listen. Listen. Pull people out of the fire. Give them the gospel. It's the only solution. Father, thank you for your grace, your love, and your goodness. Deal with our hearts, and we thank you for your love. And we pray tonight, if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, Lord, you would speak to them, convict them of their sin. They would call on your name. As you're praying, if you are over the Internet, this goes for you too. Whether you're here or there, if you... I've fallen under the conviction of the Holy Spirit that you are a sinner in need of salvation by the Lord Jesus Christ. If you believe that he died for your sins and rose from the dead, the Bible says you can be saved. 
you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you will be saved. By grace through faith, not because we deserve it. We all deserve hell, but God in His grace has chosen to make the way for our sins to be forgiven and to have our lives transformed. If you want to be born again, this is your prayer of repentance to the Lord Jesus right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.